Yes. We weren't going to let Daniel get away that easily, were we? Duh, I would have got away with it if it wasn't for you. Final movie hours, the final movie two hours. Indeed. I would and have got away with it if it wasn't for you pesky presenters. Yes. The second part of the show, coming up, we've got Daniel's top ten rants which, from the last 65 shows. Yes, which... And we have some classics. There will be quite a few familiar ones in there. Yes, <laughs> yes. A lot of fun to be had. Yes. Because you love good films, and you really tell us it is with the, with the not-so-good ones. I'm brutally you? honest, and that's yes. the way it should be. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Before that, though... Uh, the ones that didn't quite make it to cult classics. Yeah, there were there there are loads of films that I have watched in you know, the process of preparing for this slot, which you know are very deserving of cult status, but actually, as films in and of themselves are just a bit pants. Yeah. So we thought that because they're not worthy enough to get the full 20 minutes, we'd give them their two or three minutes of fame okay. and then moved on. So, uh, what do you want to start with? Um, Big Trouble in Little China. Okay. Uh, it's our old friend John Carpenter, whom we talked about quite a bit on the programme, actually, because I think Dark Star was one of the first that we covered. Yes, it was. And yes. then we did Halloween yeah. and The Thing. I, I was half, the half thing. expecting you to play the trailer again. Oh, that's true. I shall go find that. Yes, good Just idea. Talk away for a moment. Yes, and uh, then most recently we talked about The Fog during uh, Halloween a month last uh, October. So this was something of a pet project of his, made in 1986, and he'd always wanted to make an old-fashioned martial arts film, and he finally got the chance to when his previous film, Starman, both took bucket loads of money and got Jeff Bridges an Oscar nomination. The Starman yeah. is a really great film. It's kind of E.T. with more intelligence. And I love E.T., but I think Starman is actually the better film. So the story is, it follows a truck driver called Jack Burton, played by his longtime collaborator Kurt Russell, whose truck gets stolen in San Francisco's Chinatown, which is known as Little China, hence yeah. the title. And he gets embroiled in a war involving an ancient sorcerer called Lo Pan, played by James Hong. Stay with me. Yeah. He has kidnapped the girlfriend of Jack Burton's best friend, who's played by Chinese actor Dennis Dunn, on account of the fact that his girlfriend has emerald eyes and he needs to sacrifice a girl with emerald eyes so he can regain his physical form and live forever. Very plausible. Exactly. I mean, one of the ironies about being in the film business is that no, you, you spend your early part of your career making the kind of films that you're forced to make yeah. to learn your craft and doing stuff that's not that's often beneath you for some directors. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And so that when you finally get the chance to make your dream project, it often ends up being your worst film. In classic case in point, Michael Cimino started out making Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, where basically Clint Eastwood was standing behind him with a big stick saying you can only do three or four takes. Yeah. And then eventually, when he got the chance to do what he wanted, he made Heaven's Gate and Sunk United Artists. I mean, that's an extreme example, yeah. but yeah. I mean, it's got a very good, very silly setup. I mean, it does sound like an Indiana Jones film mixed with Enter the Dragon. Yes. And, no, there was a lot of pressure on Carpenter because of the fact the exact same studio were making an Eddie Murphy vehicle called The Golden Child, which had a very similar storyline. Yeah. So there was a feeling of, you know, who, which one can we get out first, yeah. in the same way as when American Werewolf was competing with The Howling, the Joe Dante film. The problem is that... Unlike Raiders of the Lost Ark or any of the Indiana Jones films, it isn't funny. I mean, the thing that made Raiders of the Lost Ark work was that Spielberg got the balance right between, on the one hand, sending up all the B-movies, yeah. and on the other hand, giving us real characters that we felt were original and interesting. This doesn't do either because it falls into all the genre traps that it's trying to send up, and all the characters are really bland. I mean, Kurt Russell's very annoying, Dennis Dunn is a bit boring, and all that Kim Cattrall does in one of her sort of Porky's uh, mannequin era roles is wandering around in Chinese silk with bucket loads of rouge on screaming a lot. <laughs> yeah. And you just think, yeah. Plus to the fact there's the big problem of effects. Because in the Indiana Jones films, all old-fashioned effects, I mean, though, the Braves of the Lost Ark melting sequence is really proper, sort of, it's wax and so forth and so forth. Whereas in this, it's the people who did the effects for Ghostbusters, so there's no physicality at all. So here it is from the archives. 
12 men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. So that was the short one. Yes. We do have the longer one. Somewhere. In Somewhere. The, uh, yes. Okay. So the Henry at Rawlinson End. Very odd film. Um, described... Sounds it. Described variously as the cinematic equivalent of Cheese Before Bedtime and the missing link between Monty Python and With Nell and I, which sets expectations extraordinarily high. Started out in life as a spoken word album in 1978 by Vivian Stanchel, who was the former lead singer and main songwriter of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, this great Dardarist band from the mid-60s. I remember them well. Brilliant band. Yes, great. Uh, and I would recommend you go and get the 40th anniversary DVD, which has gotten Adrian Edmondson performing with them, which is great. Um, so the stories were culled from when Stanchel covered for John Peel on Radio 1, and you have this, the spoken word album is a day in the life of an English aristocrat, an insane guy called Sir Henry Rawlinson, who in the film is played by Mutiny on the Bounty star Trevor Howard, and you have him living at this, you no. Know, aristocratic manor called Rawlinson End with great aunt Florrie, his nephew Hubert, who is described as in his mid-forties and still unusual, um, two resting actors called Terry Tidy and Nigel Nice, walking encyclopedia called Reg Smeaton and many more, and the, the film was made in 1980 after the, the album had taken off and become a stage play and so forth. So in the film, you get the spoken word album, by and large, added to a strange subplot about Henry trying to exorcise the ghost of his brother who was accidentally killed on a fishing trip and there's infidelity going on. The common remark that's made is, you know, when you adapt a book, the film is not as good as the book because of the fact you can't capture the unique nature of the language, and this is a film which demonstrates the same is true for spoken word albums. The language of, of Vivian Stanchel's work is beautiful. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a great, you know, descriptive line where he says, A pale sun poked impudent marmalade fingers through the grizzled lattice glass and sent the shadows scurrying like convent girls menaced by a tramp. Wonderful. That's under milk wood level of stuff. Yeah. Or On the other hand, you get these fantastic drunken one-liners as a Henry Rawlinson going, If I had all the money I'd spent on drink, I'd spend it on drink. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. But none of that goes in the film. It's very poorly directed by Steve Roberts, who would later, who would end up writing TV series based on successful Disney films. So that's the kind of caliber he had. And it comes at you with a kind of black and white aesthetic, trying to be a surrealist film from the 20s and 30s, but it squanders the cast. I mean, in the past, I've stuck up for things like Bed Sitting Room and The Magic Christian, are British films which have shambolic narratives about something to say, and yeah. this is just an all-round shambles and Correct. a real disappointment. Super's next. Yeah, this is a difficult one. We talked about this a little bit when we did Kick-Ass a couple of weeks ago. It's a comic book film directed by James Gunn, who started off his career working for Troma, you know, the, the schlocky studio yeah. from the 80s, and then made his directorial debut with Slither, which was a kind of ultra-disgusting homage to the body horror of David Cronenberg. It was a film about killer slugs, basically. Yeah. It was very gross, but in a very nice way. So, the story follows a guy called Frank, played by Rain Wilson from the American version of The Office, who is inexplicably married to Liv Tyler. She gets kidnapped by Kevin Bacon in proper sleazeball mode. You know, Kevin Bacon playing yeah. scenery-chewing villains, in which he's very good at. Um, so he decides the way to get her back is to become a superhero called the Crimson Bolt, and he enlists Ellen Page to be his sidekick, and they basically go around hitting people on the head with monkey wrenches and shouting, SHUT UP CRIME! <laughs> the big problem with this film is that we're whatever you think of Kick-Ass, at least Kick-Ass knew what it was and stuck yeah. to it, whereas this never really makes up its mind. Sometimes it wants to be like a college humour parody video, but with slightly better production values. Sometimes it wants to be a dark, subversive comedy about dealing with jealousy. 
And sometimes it comes across as a kind of exercise in moral hypocrisy. It's like if Cecil B. DeMille had done a comic book film. Yeah. Because it's the whole thing with Cecil B. DeMille of really horrible stuff happens and then God comes in at the end to say, you're very bad people and this is right and wrong. <laughs> and that's just, don't do that. You kind of have, to, from a gorehound's point of view, you have to applaud Gunn for sticking to his guns in terms of the level of head-cracking violence. I mean, there's no moments in the film that you felt were sort of screen-tested yeah. or anything like that. I mean, I won't mention the animated sequence involving the squid, but you can check that out for yourself. It will tie you up in knots as you try and work out whether or not you like it, whether or not it means anything, and whether or not it works. And my answers are not really, possibly, and no. Indeed. Another one from the archives. I remember when I was a kid, seeing stills from the movie, the very idea of these English schoolboys running around with firearms was kind of like there was just something so fundamentally taboo to me. I think more than any other film that Lindsay Anderson ever made, if created the biggest schism in the audience. Because it's not that Lindsay Anderson wanted to destroy cinema, he wanted to reinvent it. If, of course, one of our favourite cult classics. Exactly. That was one of the films I think we had a genuine meeting of minds yes, over. Yes, because we, we don't always... Yes. Sorry, Ooh, that's, that's an interesting noise. That's my phone going off very unprofessionally. But, uh, yeah. Never mind. Uh, so let's move on to the... Um, the fourth of our which is a shock treatment yeah a spiritual sequel to the rocky horror picture show which sounds dangerous and this was intended as the middle installment to a planned trilogy but the third installment called revenge of the old queen was never made for the reasons yeah. that this film failed so this time no this time brad and janet are married and living in denton but their marriage is a bit on the rocks the whole of denton where they live has been taken over by a tv station and basically turned the whole thing into a reality tv show so to fix their marriage they go on to a show hosted by a mad German scientist played by Barry Humphreys. <laughs> Not in drag, but yeah. playing a sort of ex-Nazi guy. It's essentially doing a Doctor Strangelove impression. And, you know, you have Richard O'Brien and Patricia Quinn turning up as brother and sister doctors Cosmo and Nation McKinley. Uh, there's an appearance by a pre-young one's Rick Mayle around the same time of his cameo in American yeah. Werewolf. And Brad and Janet are not played by Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon because they both had careers at that point. Instead, they're played by Kif Cliff Young and Jessica Harper, who, of course, is in Phantom of the Paradise. It's an example of a film, again, with very interesting ideas that can't deliver on them. I mean, there's all sorts of things in it about how advertising is shaping the content of television. There's yeah. an interview where Charles Gray is playing, you know, a professor, but he keeps getting talked over by Ruby Wax doing sponsorship mentions. There's a satire of the American dream with, you no know, the deliberately tacky visuals which look like bad adverts. There's fast food being peddled as a psychological cure for madness, which is kind of somewhere between Monty Python's appeal for sanity and the new Seekers adverts for Coke. <laughs> and there's... There is, of course, the rise of reality television, even before reality television existed. And you also look at something like The Running Man from six yeah. years later. The problem is that the film is a structural mess. The songs, with the exception of one called Bitchin' in the Kitchen, where, where Brad and Janet are singing about their relationship in terms of appliances, and it says, like, uh, Oh, toaster, don't you put the burn on me. Why are we always bitching in the kitchen or crying in the curtain all night? And that's quite good, but the rest of them aren't catchy. Although the Rocky Horror plot was a bit of a jumble, this is kind of like herding cats from all over the place, and it doesn't have the B-movie conventions to fall back on. There's too many characters, none of whom are charismatic enough as Tim Curry to hold yeah. the film together. The best way of describing it is to make 
the quote that Kim Newman made about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which was, he said, it seems to have been directed by someone who not only didn't make the first film, but never actually saw it. And it ends up like channel surfing through a mixture of Duran Duran videos and late night game shows, and it's just a very disappointing mess. Right, I'm going to have to read my script carefully for this one. The Ruttles, All You Need Is Cash. Yes, one of the first ever mockumentaries from the late 70s, which started out in life as a sketch on Rutland Weekend Television, which was the first big project Eric Idle did after... I remember it well. Yes. Yeah, and that was a very good sort of spoof of local news coverage, again featuring Neil Innes from yeah. The Bonzos. Uh, the gag was it was a band who res whose career resembled the Beatles in every way. It subsequently became a running gag on Saturday Night Live and was then turned into a TV film in 1978. And you go through the career of the prefab four of Dirk McQuigley, played by Eric Idle, Barry Wom, played by John Halsey, Stig O'Hara, played by Ricky Fatar, and Ron Nasty, played by Neil Innes. And they, you know, they do all the stuff the Beatles did. So you have recreations of the Cavern Club and the Ed Sullivan Show. You have the, the piss take of the, of the bigger than Jesus fiasco with, you know, um, Ron Nasty saying bigger than God, but he actually meant bigger than Rod Stewart. <laughs> um, instead of them experimenting with LSD, they become addicted to tea. And instead of, you no, know, instead of the John Lennon character marrying a Japanese hippie, he marries a, a neo-Nazi called Chastity. And all the time they're being followed around by an interviewer who's played by Eric Idle and who keeps getting attacked by the camera. Eric Idle has increasingly got a reputation as the money-grubbing member of the Pythons, the one who has kind of been living on yeah. borrowed time for much of his career. And this is the point where his writing started to become a lot lazier and he would just string out a joke for a lot longer than was necessary. It's a classic example of an idea that worked very well as a short sketch, but even when you stretch it to 70 minutes, it runs very, very thin. It recreates the look of the Beatles quite well. I mean, the yellow submarine sequences are very good, but it, they, unlike Spinal Tap, they don't feel like the band could exist in their own right. And the best, the only really memorable bit is a cameo by George Harrison, who, of course, was very close to the Pythons, uh, interviewing Michael Palin, playing the band's manager, while the band's building is being robbed behind him. He says, oh, there's no stuff being stolen. <laughs> but that's the only really good joke in the film, unfortunately. Right. The rants are coming up after this. From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. <laughs> and that's how we all feel with Daniel going. I was about to make that gag <laughs> or something along those lines. Great film, even better music. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yes. Right, let's... Um, hear a few of the ones that didn't go quite so well. Yeah, this is the top ten rants. Um, because we're a little short of time and they do go on a little bit, as I have a habit of doing, we're going to play you ten through two, and then we will finish off with, well, you kind of always knew what it was going to be, yes. number one. This uh, could be a triumph for continuity. Okay, so... Or it might not be. <laughs> Shall we have a go? Let's have a go. Three, two, one. Number ten. So, it's a remake of the 1979 rape revenge film, which uh, kind of tells you what sort of territory we're in. So if you are squeamish or, you know, uncomfortable about talking that sort of thing, then maybe just, you know, make a cup of tea. Um, so the story of the original is a young woman who, I think in the original she's a writer, but I'm not sure, she is kidnapped by a bunch of country yokels. She's kidnapped, gang raped, and then goes basically on the warpath to get revenge in any way possible and ends up burning them to death in some description. Uh, the original, I should state this, I mean, I'm kind of 
giving it more dignity than it deserves. The original is horrible. I mean, it is a really reprehensible film, which you know, which basically argues that this woman had it coming, and therefore we can be as gory and as graphic as we like. I mean, it's basically like, you know the screw like a pig scene in Deliverance? Yeah. I knew we'd come back to this. <laughs> well, in this case, it's a legitimate comparison, because the thing about the rape sequence in that, where Ned Beatty is made to squeal, <laughs> is that it's done in a wide shot, so it all the kind of the sounds and all the effects and, yeah. stuff and what actually is going on is implied. Even if you're seeing it in yeah. that long shot, you don't see anything in inverted commas that's that makes the, that's it That's the best type of horror by a mile. When you don't see it and you hear the sounds and you've got to all you've got to let your mind completely mess you up. That's yeah, it's exactly the thing with Alien. You don't see the monster, so you just project onto the thing and then your projections catch up with reality when you mm. see it. But in this case, so the, we, we now have the remake, which basically follows the same plot to a T, you know, it's the same kind of pulchritudinous woman who gets kidnapped, bad stuff happens, and then she goes on the warpath. The difference is it's made with slightly more money and slightly more efficiently, but it's still every bit as reprehensible in the sense that you have this woman who does look like she's wandered out of a lingerie ad, mm -hmm. so, and the film does make you think, yes, she had it coming for kind of wandering around with not much on and looking beautiful, and then it basically says, well, that means we can go around and kill a lot of people, and I'm sorry, it's just not acceptable. It's one of those films which makes you feel ill just talking about it. Number nine. There's no point being sort of snobbish about blockbusters, because, you know, ever since Jaws changed the face of summer releases, they're kind of here to stay, and in the case of Inception, you often get ones which are actually as smart and sophisticated as an art film. Yeah. They might be quite unusual in that respect, but you should never go in just saying, yeah. oh, this is going to be stupid. On the other hand, Pirates, the, Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, um, I, which is the fourth film in the highly lucrative pirate series. Only the fourth. By, yeah, it seems like there have been so many. Uh, produced by hit maker Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, the first three films were helmed by uh, Gore Verbinski, who most recently made Rango and is a huge hack, frankly. This is, in a new installment is directed by Rob Marshall, who's most famous for Chicago, but he also made things like Nine and Memoirs yeah. of the Geisha. Where do you stand on the first three Pirates films, just so we know where we are? Did not like them. Didn't you like the first one at all? No. Right. No. I mean, I, I normally quite like the sort of, you know, blockbuster adventure type things, but... No, well, in this case, you're in good company, because I didn't either. So, the story, for what there is of it, is that Jack Sparrow, played, of course, by Johnny Depp, is going on a quest for the Fountain of Youth. He becomes romantically entwined with a pirate called Angelica, who is played by Penelope Cruz, who worked with Rob Marshall on Nine, although she didn't get a very good hand in that, unfortunately. There's a line in Nine where she's playing Daniel Day-Lewis's lover, and he kind of, he's kind of in the process, I've got to make a film, I've got to make a film, and she says, right, if you're not going to pay attention to me, I'm just going to sit on this hotel bed with my legs open until you get back. It's like, yeah, very good writing, Rob. Thanks a lot for just demeaning a great actress in that way. So you have him falling in love with Angelica. You also have him crossing swords with Blackbeard, who's played by Ian McShane. Um, and I like Ian McShane very much, and if you've not seen... Coraline, the Henry Selleck film in which he plays Hector Bobinski, the guy who trains the mice. Go and get that on DVD because that's a very yeah. good children's film. So, let's be absolutely clear. The first Pirates film, which came out about eight years ago, it was too long and it was a bit boring in places, but as empty entertainment, it did what it set out to do. And then you get the two sequels, which were, well, Dead Man's Chest was just rubbish and At World's End was mind-numbingly bad. I actually was dragged to see the third one in cinemas and I fell asleep. Twice. <laughs> that good? Yes. yes. And yes. no, I woke up and they were still in the same scene, so I don't think I missed much. So, the problem with all the Pirates films is that they, they are essentially a collection of bits that don't have any narrative thread. I mean, in the case of the first three, it was based on a film park ride, so in, if you know the way that roller coasters work, it says up, down, up, 
down stop and you get off at the end wondering what happened but you know you've spent your money and you don't know in this case rob marshall has kind of got involved and rob marshall of course comes from musicals so he's kind of used to the idea of you choreograph this song and then this yeah. song and then this song but you don't necessarily manage to link them together and it is the same sort of thing see there's loads of sort of quests going on there's you know characters meeting up and having three-way duels and ear exchange during the scenery and occasionally the sword will kind of point out the screen because it's in 3d and in the end it's not really a film it's a kind of money-making tentpole that's sort of sitting in cinemas taking up space where more interesting films could be shown but it will be number one yeah and that is i mean with all of these things, you have to be very careful because you can't just say, well, the public is stupid, they'll pay anything. Because I don't think people are stupid. No. Not, just, not just talking about you, of yes. course, but... Everybody if, to their own taste. Exactly. And, you know, you pay your money and take your choices, but it, it's, it's not even worth getting that angry about because it's just another empty franchise money-making exercise. Number eight. New film by Jean-Luc Godard, who was once a very interesting, innovative filmmaker. He was at the forefront of the French New Wave, the Nouvelle Vague with Jean Renault. He's Jean Renault, Jean Renoir. Jean Renault is the guy in Lyon. <laughs> Dear me. So he's most famous for um, a film called Breathless in its original language called A Buddha Souffle, which was remade in the 80s by Jim McBride, starring Richard Gere. And then many people who hold that the Richard Gere version is actually better. As with The Tree of Life, it's quite hard to say what the story is. Um, it's kind of set on a cruise ship in the Mediterranean with characters who are talking in various languages about politics and about culture and about philosophy. Here's the thing. Gala has a reputation for being a sort of untouchable, which in, in sort of cinema speak means if you criticise him, you're clearly a philistine who doesn't understand anything about film. Oh, right. So call you're me about to be labelled. Call me a philistine, but this, <laughs> is, but this is utter tripe. Goddard hasn't made a good film for about 20 years. There's no cohesive narrative, there's no regard for characters, the insights are platitudinous, but worst of all for me, and this is a problem I have with a lot of Vartal stuff, there is a sort of hidden contempt for the audience. Um, when it played at Cannes in uh, 2010, there, a lot of the English critics reacted badly because of the fact that it wasn't subtitled, so you couldn't understand what was going on. Well, because what Gardner had done is, rather than subtitling everything by saying, you know, what the characters are yeah. saying at any given point, what he'd done is put no mixed subtitles on, which is that you'd have characters talking in no, hundreds of different languages, and then every so often odd words would appear up on screen. So it's in, no, somebody would talk, yeah. someone would be talking about sort of the political situation in Europe, and words would come and say, good, bad, cheese, milk, so, right, and it's, it's... And the point is... Exactly. Yeah. There is no point. It's just Goddard showing off and disappearing up his own backside. I mean, there's a wonderful John Lennon quote, which said that avant-garde is French for BS. And this is a, <laughs> and this is a classic example of, you know, Artas cinema is fine. Artas cinema, when it's done properly, is great. But when it's not done well by someone who's clearly past their prime, it does effectively amount to navel-gazing, or worse, disappearing up one's right. own fundament. And this is just an example of disappearing up said place, and you don't need to see it. It's probably going to have no real life in cinemas, because no one who speaks English is going to see it. Number seven. You film from Zack Snyder, who um, has had a rather questionable career. He started out with the remake of Dawn of the Dead, which was sort of hmm, okay, but obviously not as good as the original. Then he made 300, which was kind of flashy and riotous, but ultimately a bit empty-headed. Watchmen, which was far too long and far too dull. Most recently he made a children's animation called, and see if you can handle this title, Legends of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul. Yeah, very snappy. Yes, yes. which is an impenetrable animation featuring Nazi owls. Right. Just don't know why. So, 
This is based on his original story. It follows a girl called Baby Doll, who is played by Emily Browning, who is sent to an asylum by her father, who has framed her for murder. She is informed that in five days' time, a doctor will come and lobotomize her, so she escapes into a fantasy world, imagining, and this is where it starts getting questionable, imagining that she is a dancer in a brothel who teams up with four other dancers to go on various quests to find these sort of mythical objects which somehow will set her free. There was a great quote from uh, Christopher Toki, who's the film critic of the Daily Mail, who said, It seems to have been made for 15-year-old boys by a sad middle-aged man whose only experience of life is from violent comics, shoot-em-up video games and online pornography. It sounds like taking four or five film scripts and sort of cut them together More or less, yeah, I mean, random order. Yeah, it's very <laughs> rare that I agree with Chris Toki, you know, because he often gets things very wrong. But on this occasion, he is spot on. I mean, the thing about Zack Snyder is this. He is visually stylish in the sense that he knows how to choreograph stunt work and he can use green screen pretty well but he can't tell a story or do anything with any amount of that. I mean, the setup is very similar to Shutter Island, the Martin Scorsese film, but with kind of early 20-somethings. I mean, Shutter Island itself was a sort of ripe homage to all those 50s B-movies like Shot Corridor or The Ninth Configuration, which was made by William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist. The plot is essentially that of a video game because it's essentially, we have to find these objects to add to our inventory and that will mean, no, we can move on to the next level. And it, there's nothing narrative about it. But the thing that makes this Willie Christmas for me is the whole thing about the objectification of women. And Snyder said when he made this that he wanted to make a film which sort of sent up the geek's view of what women are like, you know, the whole idea of people who have, you know, physically impossible bodies, sort of pneumatic, the, the Lara Croft figure, yeah. essentially. But in making Sucker Punch, he seems to have fallen into the very chauvinist trap that he tried to avoid, in the sense you have these five actresses, some of whom, like Abby Cornish, are very talented, but they kind of spend the whole film walking around in, you know, mini skirts and knee socks, like they've just wandered out of a Japanese animation. I mean, I don't, and it's like the whole argument about Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill when he said it was liberating. Yes, but you're not, you're not exactly putting forward a view of womanhood other than that of just you know, someone jumping around kicking people and then occasionally behaving like a mother by having a bit of a cry. And in the same way as Sucker Punch, it's very much a film which is like, just look at all these people running around in not much on kicking things which aren't really there because it's done by CGI and there isn't really any plot to speak of, so we're just having this for titillation. As you say, I, it plays to teenage boys, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's just basically boring chauvinist crap. Number six. New comedy from uh, the writers of The Hangover and the director of Wedding Crashes. So well, this isn't boding well either. Have <laughs> you seen Wedding Crashes? Uh, no. No, the, re the moment I knew that Wedding Crashes wasn't going anywhere was there's a sequence in it where Jane Seymour, you remember from Live and Let Die? Yes. And Dr. Quinn Medicine yes. Woman, she comes in, um, there's a sequence where Owen Wilson is sitting on her bed and she comes in saying, no, that her husband doesn't pay any attention to her even though she's just had her tits done. Mm -hmm. And she asks Owen, Wins Owen Wilson to put her hand, his hands there. And he does, and then she calls him a pervert and walks off. And you just think, okay, what was the point of that apart from getting a very glamorous 50-year-old woman to take her top off and that's your level of humour? Fine. So, the story is that uh, Jason Bateman, who's in Horrible Bosses, and Ryan Reynolds, who is most recently in The Green Lantern. They're two middle-aged men who went to school together. One of them is now a lawyer who is married with three kids, and the other is a quasi-employed man-child, which is movie-speak for... What? <laughs> which movie-speak for, you can lounge around all day and we don't have to worry where the money's coming from. Oh, right. Uh, so, these two friends who both envy each other's lives, goodness knows why, when... and... 
they say, no, I'd like to change places with you. And the next morning, they wake up, surprise, surprise, in each other's bodies. And, oh, the hijinks ensue, or not. Um, it's a premise that we've seen a thousand times before. I mean, obviously, you've yep. got both versions of Freaky Friday, which itself was later remade as It's a Boy-Girl Thing, which is absolutely horrendous, in which you get a boy and a girl switching places. And, I mean, there have been some of the positive reviews who have compared this to Face Off, but at least Face Off was stupid fun. You know, that's the film where Nicolas Cage and John Travolta yeah. swap face. John Woo is a proper action director. It's not as bad as a boy-girl, as it's a boy-girl thing because it has less lazy jokes about genitalia, mm -hmm. but it is still barrel-scraping nonsense, and it's you know, the, got the one idea about, what it would it be like if these two people changed places and played against time? That idea has been done so many times it now stinks. Do something original and grow up. Number five. Fine, if you have time to talk about Spy Kids 4D. Yes, now, when we were planning this, I said you might have to expect a rant, and I'm, I'm going to try and avoid this as best I can, but I have a lot to say. It's the new f Spy Kids all the time in the world in 4D, for reasons that will become clear. It's the new film by Robert Rodriguez, who made all, pre all three previous Spy Kids films, of which the first one is good, the second one's all right, and the third one in 3D is utter rubbish. And if, if I don't know if you saw any of the Spy Kids films when they came out about sort of eight years ago. No. But that that the, the third one features Sylvester Stallone playing the villain as a floating robotic head, and it was really terrible. Anything with him is going to be questionable for me. Yes, I mean, there, there are odd times when he's okay, like Copland, but they're few and far between. So... It's more or less the same premise as before. You have ordinary kids growing up whose parents are secretly spies. The parents' lives become endangered, and so they, the kids have to become spies to save the day. But this time, of course, because the original children have since grown up and become proper actors, so to speak, you have a new batch of children whose stepmother is played by Jessica Alba. She gives her daughter a red sapphire necklace, which her mother previously owned. But it turns out that this necklace is the missing piece in the plan of an evil genius, played by Jeremy Piven, to build a machine that can stop time and in the manner of these things you have the previous spy kids turning up in the Q role in you know, the Bond yeah. scene just providing the nuance of gadgets when I was in Liverpool um, I went to the Beatles Museum where as part of the exhibition as the history of the Beatles they had a 4D film in which you watch an animation very tenuously connected with the Beatles you know there's a guy in it who looks vaguely like Ringo Starr but isn't yeah. voiced by Ringo Starr and while it's in 3D you have seats that move around and occasionally you get water squirted at you and that's what 4D is and it does prove that sort of experience the total trashiness and pointlessness of 3D the fact that you're having all these effects and this this peripheral stuff thrown at you to yeah. distract from the fact that the film isn't any good at all. In this case, we don't have people having water squirted. We have 3D plus aromascope, which if you go back to um, the 1960s or... Smelly vision! Yes, or the scratch and sniff cars that yes. you used to get in the horrible history yeah. books and so forth, where you could smell people's boils and so forth. So, I mean, it does allow people to make the joke that the film is a total stinker, and boy, it's a total <laughs> stinker. First of, first of all, it is a total piece of money-grubbing trash. I mean, it was made eight years after the last film. You've got a completely new cast. Rodriguez apparently got the idea for this film and for doing it in smell-o-vision, or aromascope, whatever you want to call it, when he was making Machete, and just Jessica Alba was in that, and Jessica Alba had her one-year-old child on set, and she would frequently have to stop in the middle of the takes to go and change its nappies. And he thought the idea, well, what about a super mom who, has, who actually has, you know, is a spy, but actually has to do that as well? Yeah. And, you know, you can understand where he got the idea of smelling it from. Um, the plot is virtually non-existent. I mean, the, the villain's plan is ripped off of, um, do you remember Bernard's Watch? 
the CATV program about a, a kid who's no. given the ability to stop time, which of course in, in itself was based on a Twilight Zone episode called A Kind of a Stopwatch, where a guy has yeah. a watch that can stop time and eventually he breaks the watch so no one can ever move again. And it's a very interesting, chilling Twilight Zone episode. Whereas this just barrels forward from one pointy, pointless set piece to the next and then randomly it stops. On top of all that, you have terrible acting, and Jessica Alba is absolutely dreadful. If you saw the BAFTAs last year where she presented an award, she, she looked so completely gormless even when reading an autocue, and you just get the sense of you're being put on screen because you're pretty and you can't do anything else. It's so bad that Antonia Banderas, who was who has a, a, a sizable appearance in the film and was one of the best things about the original few films, actually asked for his name to be taken off the credits because he didn't want to be associated with it. It's utter garbage and it's not a proper kids film and it's pointless to it being in 3D, let alone 4D, and if you go for the Ricky Gervais cameo as a talking dog, that's not even funny. Number four. One that looks possibly as the Christmas turkey is going to be New Year's Eve. Yeah, a new film by Gary Marshall, who uh, started off his career as the director of Pretty Woman, which, um, when we... That's a good start. Well, yeah, I think Pretty Woman is the, it's the dictionary definition of a decent film, because it's sort yes. of, it's all right, but there's nothing massively memorable about it. And I'll, I'll tell this story again about, um, the story about Pretty Woman is quite interesting. It was written by G.D. By JD Athens, who started out as the, the writer of, um, a great little horror satire called Piranha Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death, which is a satire of feminism starring Bill Maher in which you have a group of uh, feminist cannibals in the jungle who are warring because one group wants to eat men with papaya and the other one wants yeah. to eat them with avocado. So it's a <laughs> little satire. So then, uh, he, so it's interesting how sort of Pretty Woman came out of sort of exploitation yeah. in, the long, in the long run. But since Pretty Woman, he has effectively gone downhill quite sharply. His last film was Valentine's Day, which was in sort of love actually without the structure or the discipline. And that's it. <laughs> something. I mean, do you want to run off some of the cast lists so we can get a rough idea? Yes, indeed. Uh, I've got it here. It is effectively a guest yes. list film. Uh, Halle Berry, uh, John Bon Jovi, yeah. Robert De Niro, uh, Jessica Biel, Abigail Breslin, Josh Dolhamel. Yes, uh, I, think it's, I think it's Duke but it doesn't, it, it doesn't particularly matter. I mean, it's, essentially you have a bunch of famous people and there is a, a series of loosely intertwining stories all set on New yeah. Year's Eve and the idea of, you know, what do you hope to be? What do you regret doing in the last year? Yeah. Will you find love? All that sort of thing. I mean, it's basically rubbish. I mean, if you're going to do big cast names, you know, character drama with intertwining stories, I mean, you have to ha be someone with, well, if you want to do it lightheartedly, you have to have the sort of the writing talent of Richard Curtis, because as, yes. as shambolic a director as Richard Curtis is in terms of assembling a story, write, yeah. he can write very yeah. well. And you know, for all the shambolic things that are wrong with Love Actually, yeah. there are individual moments which are well written, like the moment where Emma Thompson goes off and has a private nervous breakdown. And would say, yeah. no, it's it's a, it's a little tiny scene, but it almost makes the rest of the film worthwhile. Or if you uh, look at the other end of it, I mean, you look at something like Robert Altman's films in which you into things like Nashville or particularly yeah. Gosford Park which is a who's who of British actors. Oh you know, wasn't it? Yes. Christopher Scott Thomas, yes. Stephen Fry, Michael Gambon, all yeah. those sort of people. But the reason that film works is not because you spent your time going, it's famous people, let's see if they do anything interesting. Yeah. But these are loads and loads of three-dimensional, very complex, very yeah. conflicted characters who just happen to be played by famous people. Let's see yes. what they do. Whereas this is just, it's it's symptomatic of the way that modern Hollywood works, which is we don't need a story, we don't need themes, we don't need substance. Let's just get a load of famous brand names, pick yeah. the day, and get a good title, and it'll take money. And it's 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 shoddy and it's lazy, and it deserves to take nothing at all. It will obviously take a lot of money because of the star power involved, but it's just rubbish. 
number three. Let's have a look at um, the new releases then. I think we better get the rant out of the way first, haven't we? Uh, Restless. Okay. I was reading the plot for this. It sort of worked for about five lines, and then it talks about ghosts, and I was thinking, hmm. Yes. Uh, so, Restless, new film by Gus Van Sant, who is most famous for Goodwill Hunting, which, um, won Best Original Screenplay Oscars for Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. So great you, film. So when, well, it's okay, I like it, but it is a bit dull in places. I mean, because so whenever you see Academy Award winner Matt Damon, that's where he got it from. So. No, I remember it. Yes. yes. And most recently he uh, got Oscar nominated for Milk, which uh, Sean Penn won an Oscar for at any rate. So the story follows a lady called Annabelle Cotton, played by uh, Mia Vashikovska, who was most recently in Jane Eyre. She's a terminal cancer patient with about three months to live. She develops a relationship with a guy called Enoch Bray, who's played by Henry Hopper, who is son of the late Dennis Hopper, so, you know, quite a, a, a reputation to live up to in more ways than one. Um, he has, in to quote the RT synopsis, dropped out of the business of living and spends all of his time gate-crashing funerals, so it's a little bit Harold and Maud already, and they develop a friendship. He's also got a friendship with the ghost of a Japanese kamikaze pilot, which only he can see, and that's, that's where it gets a little bit fanciful. Now, yeah. here's the thing, Gus Van Sant is infuriatingly inconsistent as a filmmaker. On the one hand, you know, he's, you know, Drugstore Cowboy, My Own Private Idaho, To Die For, which is one of Nicole Kidman's best performances, showing that she can actually do comedy very well. Most recently, he made Elephant, which was a terrific film about and sort of a school massacre, which came very shortly after Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine, but it was a much more interesting film. So he's good on that. On the other hand, even Cowgirls Get the Blues, which it's, you know, Uma Thurman is a hitchhiker with massive thumbs, and that's the whole gag. Um, the remake of Psycho, which is one of the most pointless things ever undertaken, and most recently, before Milk, he did Last Days, which was sort of supposedly based on the last days of Kurt Cobain, but they couldn't actually call him Kurt because of a licensing issue, so you had this guy called Michael Pitt playing Blake, wandering around this house for three days, looking at trees and trying to make porridge, and you just think, why am I paying money to watch this drivel? So... Occasionally he's very, very good, but when he's bad, he's navel-gazing, overly quirky, earnestly dull, or just plain stupid, and this is a return to all of those. Um, first off, it's the usual problem with Hollywood illnesses of, you know, Mia Mashakovska looks incredibly glamorous right up to the moment where she pops the clogs, which yeah. I don't think happens with terminal cancer patients. Yep, indeed. Secondly, it's the unbearable quirkiness of it. I mean, the Enoch character, like I say, he gate-crashes funerals, which, you know, got Harold Maud is fine, because that's charming and very, very funny, and it's one of Hal Ashby's best films, but he does things like playing battleships with the ghost or lying on the ground and drawing chalk outlines around his body or dressing up as a pilot and that becomes very difficult to bear very early on. But worst of all, it's, it's the pretentiousness of it. I mean, if this had been made by someone like Lasse Halstrom, the guy who made Chocolat and What's yeah. Eating Gilbert Grape, it would have been just about excusable because, you know, Lasse Halstrom has a very sugary sensibility and it's also light-hearted and frothy. Yeah. I mean, Chocolat in particular, which, you know, um, Juliette Binoche owns a coffee shop and then Johnny Depp turns up as a gypsy who just happens to play the guitar and she falls in love with him. No, but that, that's fine. Great film. It's, yeah, I really enjoy Chocolat. And, but, so if Lasse Halstrom had done this, it would have been sort of tween excusable. But it's Gus Van Sant saying, hey, this is arty, this is profound, this is really interesting about existential. And you just think, no, it's not, Gus. You are a complete idiot. Go back to something like Elephant because this is self-absorbed, navel-gazing twaddle and it's one of the worst films of the year. Number two. W.E. New film by Madonna, who will be known in acting circles for things like Vita and Body of Evidence or her terrible cameo in Die Another Day. So did she learn anything from her husband? Um, 
Well, the thing... The ex-husband, ironic, rather. Well, the ironic thing is that Guy Ritchie has become a better filmmaker since he divorced her. <laughs> so, <laughs> make of that what you will. I mean, she made her directorial debut with the unfunny comedy called Filth and Wisdom, which had a soundtrack by Gogol Bordello. And on this occasion, it's a film set in two time periods. So, on the one hand, you have the relationship between the former Edward VIII, played by James Darcy, and Wallace Simpson, played by... <laughs> Excuse me. Andrea Riseborough. I'll cut that sneeze out of the podcast. <laughs> uh, Andrea Riseborough, who was in Brighton Rock. And then, so it's, it's the post-King's speech, Edward VIII and so yeah. forth, because they're living in exile. And on the other hand, you have a section set in the 90s where a woman called Wally Winthrop, played by Abby Cornish, is having marital problems of her own. She falls for a Russian security guard who actually turns out to be a very sensitive academic <laughs> as, as things happen. It's already attracted pretty awful reviews, and Mark Kermode has called it one of the worst he's ever seen, and that takes a lot considering some of the films that he's seen. And Madonna actually had to recut the film after it was booed out of the Venice Film Festival. Gosh. Um, some of the criticism does seem to have centred around Madonna's past record, saying, oh, she was a rubbish actress, therefore she's going to be a rubbish director, but they are completely different skills. Unfortunately for Madonna, it is true that it is, I mean, I'm not for kicking anything when it's down, but it is absolutely dreadful. Massive problems, which I'll sort of canter through very quickly because we've only got three minutes. First of all, the split time frame doesn't work. I mean, it's trying to draw the parallel between the conflicted lives of the yeah. two women, but the links are completely tenuous. I mean, at least with something like Sarah's Key, there was a genuine desire to see how the relationships in the past and present connected were, well, in this case, we just don't care. Secondly, it's the naked celebration of materialism. It has no sense of perspective whatsoever about you know, what wealth or struggle is. Yeah. You know, someone moaning about having to pay $10,000 more for a pair of gloves than they wanted to. I mean, the thing that made the King's Speech work was it showed the relevance of royal problems to the common man, whereas this has a view of royalty which looks like the video of a material girl. It's just a naked celebration yeah. of wealth, and uh, everything's fantastic. Everything's parties. And then you've got the political problems. It, you know, it's basically saying, oh, actually, there are very nice, warm, lovable people completely overlooking or failing to address the fact that they were Nazi sympathisers, which is very widely documented. You know, there's been lots of stuff written about Wallace Simpson meeting Hitler and yeah. actually getting on with him quite well, and he doesn't have the guts to sort of depict the royal people getting it on. So whenever there is a moment in the film where Wallace and Edward get intimate, it immediately cuts to Abby Cornish wandering around in her underwear, and you just think, no, just yeah. stick with one story. The screenplay is absolutely risible. I mean, Madonna co-wrote the screenplay with the guy who directed her Truth or Dare documentary, which you know, is saying a lot, and has lines in it like, you have no idea how hard it is to live out the greatest romance of the century, and just... Oh. Yeah. It's, it's shot horribly. No, there's a, there's a horrible sequence in it which doesn't belong at all. Where it's set in the 30 sections of the, uh, of the film where everyone dances around to the Sex Pistols pretty vacant for no apparent reason, which just, just makes you commit. Yeah. No, Madonna, if you want to make a series of pop videos, make a series of pop videos, but get out of my cinema. But worst of all, worse than all of those things, it is horribly self-serving. I mean, Madonna has... She has denied this in interviews, but she clearly sees a parallel between herself and Wallace Simpson in terms of, you know, an American who's kind of coming into a male-dominated environment and having success. It is a film that was clearly made to feed her own ego because she's made a film which is obsessed with the culture of celebrity and the desire to be famous, which if you take Madonna's material girl seriously is actually what she wanted all along. So it's self-serving, it's horribly made, it's narcissistic, it's preeny, it's stupid, it's vacuous, it's boring, it's politically inept. If it's not the very worst First film of the year, I will be very, very surprised. But you quite liked it, really, didn't you? <laughs> Back to the old catchphrase. So that's 10 through 2. Um, 
I think everyone knows pretty much what's coming, but we thought we'd save the best to last. Yes, because you just loved it so much, didn't you? Indeed. So, yes. uh, we'll, we'll finish on the infamous rant of Transformers Dark of the Moon. Which you loved. Yes. Uh, Number one, one, one. Well, let's start with, um, with, with Transformers, but, uh, uh I heard, uh, Tom Davidson absolutely, uh, slamming this one in his show on Tuesday night here on Lionheart Radio. Right. And I thought before you had a go, I was going to address the balance. So, right. I was down in Southampton yesterday and picked up, um, their local listings magazine and they've got a reviewer called Drew Bridger who says, and then you can respond. After the laughing stock Revenge of the Fallen made of the franchise, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Dark of the Moon could be just one more, more of the same from Michael Bay, turning what was once a legitimate classic animation into something that involved characters trying to appeal to the young generation and failed. Also, it had Megan Fox. The good news, Dark of the Moon looks like it could well have corrected all the mistakes the franchise has made thus far, and it doesn't star Megan Fox. Over to you, Daniel. Can I just ask, was that... Is that a review of the film, or is that a preview based upon trailers and so forth? Um... Because that's a listings magazine as opposed to a review magazine. Yeah, um, I think it's... Yeah, it's, I think it's meant to be a review. Yeah, just the way it's phrased yeah. is like, could have addressed, <laughs> as opposed yeah. to has redressed. Okay, let's get it out of the way. Transformers Dark of the Moon in 3D, which is the new film by Michael Bay. <sighs> Who is quite possibly the worst filmmaker in the world at the moment and no it's the third film based on the hasbro toys and the story is story um in 1969 the apollo 11 missions go to the moon and they found some alien robot parts on the moon and now the robots have sort of have returned to earth to get back this thing called the ark and there's going to be one final showdown between the, the autobots and the decepticons to stop megatron taking over the world but none of that is relevant i mean essentially one of the things that a lot of Transformers fans have been saying in defense of this film is, oh, well, this one actually has a story. But it's like, you know, the Pirates 4 was like, oh, it's based on a novel. Yeah. You took the title from a novel and then you made <laughs> it up as you went along. There's a plot for about 20 minutes and that plot itself is a rip-off of Arthur C. Clarke's The Sentinel or Isaac Asimov and so forth. And then it just gets back into what it was before. Um, people often say to critics when, you know, people like you and I talk about action movies on that sort of thing, like, oh, don't take it seriously. It's just meant to be a bit of fun. Well, the problem with Transformers is that it isn't fun. It is stupid, boring, loud, incoherent, racist, misogynist, and without any redeeming feature at all. And I mean this, seriously. If you go and see it, shame on you. Right. Let me give you, first off, it's far too long. It's two hours, 34 minutes long, which is 15, yeah, minutes, a long one. 15 yes. minutes longer than 2001 A Space Odyssey, a film that went from the beginning of man to the birth of a new species, and this just goes for two and a half hours of people hitting each other. Um, the final battle sequence alone goes on for an hour. And no, any editor worth their salt will tell you no battle sequence should go on for 60 minutes because no matter how good a battle sequence is, you often can't tell what's going on. In the case of Michael Bay, it's doubly so because he keeps cutting every two seconds because he can't tell a story. You've got the terrible acting. I mean, Sheila Booth turns up again. He's the charisma vacuum. They get John Turturro, Francis McDormand, and John Malkovich on to do a bit of acting in inverted commas to pick up the check and you know, losing all credibility that they had during their work with the Coen brothers. The biggest problem, however, with Transformers for me is the sexualization of it. Because, no, Transformers, as the reviewers yeah. talking about, you know, started off as a kid's toy. Then there was a kid's animation in the 80s. Then there was an, an animated movie. You know, it's a toy about robots hitting each other. And, you no, know, it's a kid's toy. I don't have any problem with the toy. But what Michael Bay has done is thinking, okay, well, we've got to turn it into a film. 
about you know, a kid's toy, but in order to make our money back, we've got to attract the teenage audience. So what we'll do is we'll put in a load of pseudo-pornographic visuals so that all the, the kids can kind of watch the big explosions while the dads can leer over the girls. Mm, that's so not good. It isn't good. It's not just not good. It's frankly unacceptable. I mean... There's, we mentioned that Megan Fox isn't in this in this one because I think at the end of the sometime last year there was controversy about her calling Michael Bay Hitler, and no, suffice to say she didn't get cast in the new one. So in this one, the the love interest, so to speak, of Sheila Booth is played by Rosie Huntington Whiteley, who is an ex Victoria's Secrets lingerie model that Michael Bay met when he was shooting an advert, and. As an indication of the film's attitude to women, the opening shot of Rosie Huntington Whiteley's character is a sequence of her walking up a staircase with a camera focusing on her backside. That's no, yes. I, yeah. see, I can see why you don't like the film. Well, yes. yeah, but the yeah. point is that it's it's putting across a view of women, of basically women are like cars, they're just objects to be stared at and exploited. And I just, it's just not good enough, let alone good enough for a 12A certificate film. Then you've got all the other problems about, you know, the fact that it's in 3D, which is pointless. You've got the racist robots coming back from the first one with the Jamaican adverts to say, we don't do reading, which is completely unacceptable. And it is an early candidate for the worst film of the year. It is so bad, it makes Pirates of the Caribbean 4 look half decent. And I'm not kidding. And there was me thinking Tom was going to outdo you with slamming the film. <laughs> so you've given back as good as he can, you've so... Uh... I think I'm going to have to now to download your review and his review and sort of... Well, you'll have a, a bout. We'll, 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 head uh, head bout. we'll splice them, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Who can do the worst review of the year or the most critical review? Well, yeah, because he might be covering for you in a few weeks, so why, yes. don't, you, why don't you make a trailer <laughs> of the two of us? Yes, that's right. <laughs> And I remember making that trailer a what fun. Yes, yes. I, I think that is still the worst film I've reviewed on the while we've been doing this show. And uh, I can't wait for the next part of the Transformers to come along. Uh, yes, yes. Ne next summer I think it's due. So don't tempt us. So what's coming up um, the rest of the year that we should look forward to? Well, we'll rattle through these very quickly. But there's there's quite a bit of good stuff. I mean, next week we've got Killer Joe, which is the new William Friedkin film, which is always good. We've got the reboot of Spider Man, which looks half decent. Andrew Garfield was interviewed on Five Live yesterday and seem pretty eager. Dark Knight Rises is coming out on July 20th. Well, hopefully, you know, round off the Gotham trilogy of Christopher Nolan, very good. See it in IMAX. There's the adaptation of Anna Karenina, which is Joe Wright taking on Leo Tolstoy, which should be interesting. Uh, Looper, which is a science fiction film which reunites Joseph Gordon-Levitt with the director of Brick, which is how he started. Tim Burton's feature-length remake of his short film Frankenweenie. Uh, the new Paul Thomas Anderson film called The Master, which looks intriguing. The new Bond film, Skyfall, which is coming out on October 26th. Cloud Atlas, which is an adaptation of the hugely complicated novel by David Mitchell, not that one. And it's also the Wachowskis getting back behind the camera. Uh, there's Flight, which is Robert Zemeckis returning to live action. Seven Psychopaths, which is the new film by Martin McDonough, who wrote in Bruges. The Life of Pi adaptation, which is being done by Ang Lee now, and I'm really excited about that. Les Miserables, which is being done yeah. by Tom Hooper. The first part of The Hobbit. And to round off, Baz Luhrmann's version of The Great Gatsby, which comes out on Boxing Day. So it's going to be a busy year. It's going going to be a great second half, but I think. Not, not with you. I'm it's afraid a, not. It's been a great 65 movie hours. It's been a, a pleasure doing yes. this show with you, Richard, yes. and uh, thank you to Paul for hosting the first few. Yes, indeed. I'm going to miss you. Yes, we'll miss you. Anyway, you're back on Thursday, aren't you? Well, the last ever show is one till three. So, um, we shall see you then. Here's the news. Bye. Bye. Lionheart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.